This podcast brought to you by ACES, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure and Morin for sponsoring Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IA Summit. What is the business value of information architecture? We keep hearing about several virtues, including those of experience design, interaction design, user-centered design, storytelling, usability, accessibility, and the list seems to go on and on to include some other damned abilities. Eric Rice, co-founder of Fat Ducks in Copenhagen, reviews the current bean counter acronyms, including ROI, telling why these are surprisingly uncompelling arguments to business executives. With an uncertain economy and tight money, our responsibility needs to focus on our clients' viable choices. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. God, I can hear all the keyboards going with all this twittering. <laughs> but this is, in fact, a serious presentation. Oscar Wilde has a quote that I absolutely adore. He says, nowadays, everybody knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And one of his contemporaries, Vincent van Gogh, said, someday, you know, Vincent van Gogh, he sold like two paintings in his entire lifetime. He said, well, someday, People are going to realize that the value of my paintings is more than just the price of the canvas and the paints. So apparently, you know, 120, 30 years ago, people were really interested in what the concept of value was. Do any of you here doubt the value of information architecture? I want to see some hands. Come on, tell me, who thinks that this is a crock of shit? Well, what do we do? At the very first summit, Lou Rosenfeld passed out pieces of paper and asked folks to explain what they thought information architecture was. And he spent all night trying to collate this, and this is what he came up with. Okay, so we're there, right? We did this 10 years ago. I'm sorry, you don't speak Polish. Gosh. But you know, this is the way our community looks at the crap that we produce. Well, we'll do it in English just for the benefit of you. We've got information architecture, we've got user, we've got information, we've got technology, we have standards, we have disciplines, policies, and in the middle we have goals. I'm sorry. This doesn't help us sell anything. It was a very nice exercise, but it's not really furthering our cause. See, the clients know what they want. And then we come along, and we know what they need. the want and the need. This is the fatal disconnect. See, because the clients are telling us, well, want, I want a better website. How difficult can that be? And what do we do? Well, we go out there and we say, right, okay, these are all the wonderful things that we can do. 
not compelling. We want them to say, well, you know, I want information architecture. Okay? The German poet and author Johann Wolfgang von Goethe wrote, Es hört jeder noch nur, was er versteht, which means he hears only that which he understands. And this is the kind of crap that we're pouring at the business community. This is very frustrating to our clients. Peter Morville, several years ago, says, well, we believe that IA is important, but we don't have scientific proof. And this places us in the role of quasi-religious missionaries desperately striving to convince the masses of the righteousness of our vision. So we invent models and methods, and then we love statistics, and we worship at the altar of ROI, which is why, apparently, so many of us are here today. We have tools, and we have things that we want to accomplish, <coughs> and we don't always use the right ones. Our client, we throw methods at them. This is a usability chart. I've never quite figured out what this is about, but the customers leave. They run away. They scream. They say, oh my god, I don't know what to do with this. I don't understand it, and if I don't understand it, I'm not going to pay anyone for it. Return on investment. Well, that's why we're here. So if you want to talk about return on investment, if you think that this is the way to go, then let's at least figure out what the hell this is. Return on investment basically says if you hire me, you're probably going to get your money back. But let's look at the calculation. This is interesting. This is from Google a couple of years ago. The number one in three spots are for our friend Jakob Nissen. The business community isn't talking about a return on investment. We are talking about return on investment. That's a scary thought. This is the simple calculation. ROI, return on investment, means the benefits minus the costs divided by the costs. The gains outweigh the costs, OK? I spend 22 bucks for, margari uh, for, uh, for uh, uh, Bloody Mary mix and vodka, $22. I get $25 in. I divide it by $22, which means I get 0.12, and I multiply that by 100, and I have a 12% return on my investment. Okay? So that's the economics of making Bloody Marys. Actually, this is kind of interesting, because a couple of years ago in Las Vegas, I told you all that I had actually played piano in a whorehouse once. And I realized yesterday evening that selling liquor without a license in Tennessee technically makes me a bootlegger. <laughs> so uh, my CV gets interesting, more interesting every year. Now, the former is what we have a tendency to use when we work out ROI. But in reality, the bean counters the chief financial analysts and so on, they say, well, no, no, it's the net income divided by the book value of the assets. 
And we've got two major problems here. The first is that the numerator, net income, is very, very unreliable. This is from valuebasedmanagement.net. And if you don't know this site and you don't know very much about business, I encourage you to go there because there's a lot of information there that's really, really good. But the point is because the net income is a very difficult metric to figure out, it means that the whole equation doesn't work. And let me ask you, here I have a half-used bottle of Bloody Mary mix. Now, would anyone care to tell me what is the denominator? What is the net value of my assets at this point? <laughs> oh, enough. It's just water. <laughs> All right, now if you really want to do this seriously and if you're really talking to the bean counters, you have to figure out, well, companies generally have a lot of cash on hand and then you have to figure out, well, what's the interest, what's the tax, all of this kind of stuff. It's starting to get a little difficult, okay? Dan Saffer says an awful lot of things. <clears throat> and occasionally I actually agree with the man. Uh, this is the wrong point to say that. I'll get back to that. Uh, return on investment, this is actually very critical. Return on investment is based on historic data. It's backward looking. I can't figure out the ROI until I sell some Bloody Marys, okay? So it's no insights into the future. And yet, what do we do? We've got Jacob Nielsen in terms of gross averages. I estimate, I estimate, what kind of nonsense is that? That spending about 10% on yada, 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 yada. I'm sorry, the business community just doesn't buy that. It's called voodoo economics, and if you don't know how to make a voodoo doll, go to WikiHow, because it's really good, and you can probably pick up some Spanish moss here in Memphis, and it's, it's two twigs, and you bind them together. Hmm. I'm serious. <laughs> okay, then we have the payback period. This is also a metric you should know about. It's the cost of investment divided by the cash flow per year. The payback period here, well, I bought this stuff on Wednesday, so my payback period is about two days. <coughs> Paid for itself in three months, whatever. This is a metric that you can actually use to some extent. The total cost of ownership, this is also important. It's OPEX, operational expenses plus capital expense, operational expenses, that's salaries, and capital expenses, that's computers, hardware, that kind of thing, divided by the duration of the project, and you say, well, all right, so it's going to cost us 100 bucks a month to run this program. He hears only that which he understands. And here we've got the business community, and this is the kind of stuff that they're throwing at us. Who knows what, what EBIT is? I want to see some hands here. Shh, 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 don't tell me what it is, but I just want to see hands. How many people actually know what E-B-I-T means? Not enough of you. Not enough of you. If you want to play this game, if you want to talk to your customers, if you want to pretend you're a businessman, you better damn well know that this is earnings before interest and tax. IRR, internal rate of return, COQ, cost of quality. This is the language of business. And here we have Dan Saffer. If they'd wanted an MBA, they would have hired an MBA. So don't worry. Put your pens down. Stop taking notes, okay? 
Because now we're going to get real. It's not about return on investment. It isn't. I promise you. Jared, did Jared leave? <laughs> We're going to talk real quiet now, okay? This is a really good article that has some flaws. That's the nice version. Uh, basically, Jared is saying, well, the cost of frustration increased expenses, lower profits, re reduced productivity, wasted development. Those are bullet points. I don't like those. Do something else. Let's be creative here. Jared's right. Uh, Steve Krug talks about this too in terms of the, um, the reservoir of goodwill. I mean, if you screw up enough during the creation of your website, people just get frustrated and leave. This is the good part of the article. But then Jared has a fictitious case that he creates for Amtrak, the American railway system. And uh, this is how it works out. He says, well, the average reservation is 220 bucks. The reservation's 40,000. The potential income is $8.8 .8 million a month. That's a lot of money. However, 75% of the people cannot complete their reservations. There's a loss. You can recapture some of this through uh, good, better usability. So the potential gain is $1.3 million, which works out to about $16 million a year. So obviously, we should be investing an awful lot of money in usability. Or information architecture, you know, whatever we want to talk about. Is this plausible? Do you buy this? Good for you. The math is, well, you know, let, let's, let's don't, forget the math. So this is somebody who says, hey, I want to book a trip. And so they go to the Amtrak site, OK? And then they say, Ugh, I can't figure this out. What is the next step? No, 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 no. According to the article, they said, well, I'm going to stay home. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, Jared. <coughs> Just doesn't work out that way. <laughs> I sent this article to one of our clients, who happens to be an MBA from the University of Chicago, which is currently competing with Dartmouth to be the leading business school in the entire world. And this is the email I got back. I did not edit it. OK. So let's be a little careful about how we invent these ROI things. Voodoo economics. But we're not alone. This is another interesting thing. When I was putting these slides together for you all, I found this. This is uh, something called AdLib software. There's, this is their calculation 
for the life science industry, uh, ECTD stands for Electronic Common Technical Documentation. So every time you have a drug or anything that needs to be launched on the market, you have to file all of this stuff. And so if the, the number of submissions per week, 100, hours saved, uh, 183. I mean, they have some idea that it takes two hours to do a submission and you can cut it down to 10 minutes, something like that. So you're saving about half a million dollars a year by using their software. And then, of course, you can multiply this up. And I guess if you had 3,000, then you'd just like, you could give the money to Amtrak, and then they could fix their system. <laughs> uh, I was kind of curious. Uh, we've worked a lot with uh, the drug industry. And so I called a regulatory, uh, there's some teeth I'm breaking in for a friend. <clears throat> I called a regulatory affairs officer at a drug company I know to ask her, well, how many submissions do you guys actually do a week? I mean, is this reasonable or not? Because I'm figuring, my gosh, you know, if they're just giving this to a secretary, if I figure out at that hourly rate, they're paying people $109,000 a year. I want that job. And this is what she said. This is just doesn't enter into the calculation. This is not a nice to have, this is a must have. We have to submit this documentation. How do you count it? Per product, per country, new submission, repeat submission. This is a vendor that does not understand our business and will never get on our shortlist. So much for ROI. Wow. This is uh, another calculation. This is uh, the cost of not finding information. Uh, Jacob Nielsen and Peter Morville. Uh, I've taken this and tried to work it out in terms of uh, usability. And uh, I love this one. We can fix our incomprehensible user interface for a million dollars, or we can close our eyes and wish real hard that our users won't care. Well, he's saving a million dollars today. What did you do? I want to introduce you to the chip Dan card. This is the, uh, the national payment card in, uh, in Denmark. Uh, they're, um, you know, they're, they're credit cards and they have a chip on them, okay? And in the old days, you used to just swipe your card and you'd type your PIN and, you know, it was all very easy and you could put the card back in your wallet and go about your business and wait for the, uh, the girl behind the counter to pack your things or whatever. Uh, well, now we have this machine where you stick it in and it thinks for an awful long time. Well, is that really Eric Reese there? Hmm, I will think about that. And in the meantime, you know, the groceries are coming down and I want to get it packed. I live in Denmark. They don't pack them for us. We have to do that ourselves. And uh, it takes a long time and you finally get to type in your PIN code, but then you have to leave the card there until the final amount is due and so on and so forth. So there are all kinds of problems. People forget their cards because they sort of go about their business. They, they're, they're still thinking about the old system where you just swiped it and put it away. And, so I figured, well, all right, let's conservatively figure that it takes about, let's say it's stealing five seconds. So I went down to my local grocery store, which is actually pretty big, and I know the manager very well because we've worked together on some other user, user experience projects. And I said, look, you know, let's try and work out the math for this. So they have, on average, seven checkout lines open every day. The average salary is crap. Uh, it's 120 kroner uh, per, uh, per hour. So that's two Danish crowns per minute. The number of transactions, and this is secret, so don't tell anyone, uh, 1800, uh, about 1,900. And the number of seconds, I, well, I said five seconds. So that works out to 315 Danish crowns, which is about 50 bucks. So is this a big difference? No, not really. 
But if you're waiting in line for people who've forgotten their cards or whatever, then this does make a big difference. Um, finally, I get to quote me. Uh, you know, sometimes a cracker is worth more than a handful of crumbs. We have a tendency to think of these five seconds, and it's not really there that the money is. We can't always sort of put it all together and, hey, you know, I saved five seconds so many times that now I have a whole hour. It just doesn't work that way. So be careful of these kinds of calculations. Sometimes they work, mostly they don't. ROI is not the same as sale. This is Sterling. They, uh, we had an NDA, but uh, the uh, airline went bankrupt, so I, I'm assuming that I no longer have an NDA with this company. They are a discount airline, so they were, s they were selling everything. I mean, it cost to have baggage. If you wanted to sit with your spouse when you were going on a trip, you had to book seats, and the seats cost extra. Now, the thing is, these stupid tabs were not working. Uh, going back going out, coming back. Uh, people were booking in one direction, but not the other. It was a, kind of a simple usability problem. And I mean, the obvious solution was, well, show two airplanes, hello. That would certainly help. Uh, <clears throat> let's do the math. They're, by their own estimation, they were losing 200,000 euros a month. That's a lot of money. It's like $300,000 or something. Our cost for fixing this was 17,000 euros. The payback period, therefore, is about the same as Bloody Mary's. It was two and a half days. And they didn't do that. Well, you know, I have a friend who's in the, uh, and he can do this. And, and now they're out of business. Price is what you pay, value is what you get. This is an extremely important thing. Value is really the perceived benefit divided by the price. And don't write this down because you can't do the math, because this is subjective. It's sort of, I think it's worth the price. And the thing is, value isn't ROI either. And ROI is therefore not sale. Value is not sale. Every service represents value. Please get that through your heads. This is a given, and givens are not competitive positions. We're selling an extremely sane service. We'll move your stuff around and it'll get more valuable. And the customers are coming to us, the clients, the potential clients. And they say, what? What is this about? The business analysts, they understand all the little blocks. The value we bring is that, my gosh, we understand the arrows. This is a strategic decision. This is a key business decision. And this is what we need to be presenting. Value, though, is subjective, and it's emotional. Is this Mercedes a good car? I mean, who knows? If I own that Mercedes and it has a flat tire or it won't start and I need to get to the airport for an important meeting, and somebody comes along in some old rattle trap and will drive me, then that car becomes very, very important. This is actually a car I own. This is the East German Trabant, the, uh, the famous plastic car with a two-stroke motor. It was a wonderful car. I tell you, the Trabant is really, really valuable if your Mercedes won't start, okay? It's subjective and it's emotional. Do you know that the auto industry in the United States was shocked to find that the deal maker, the, the, the deal breaker, the deal whatever, 
for Americans, looking at cars was not the fuel economy. It wasn't the 32 valves or double overhead cam whatevers. No, it was the number and placement of cup holders. Cup holders, where you put your Bloody Mary when you're driving. <laughs> Speaking of which, so cheers. Mm. <coughs> yeah. We're selling a service that isn't really very sexy, and it, there's not a lot of emotion involved in this. I mean, you can't hug your site map. We're the only ones who love our own deliverables. Well, and Dan Brown. <laughs> That was a blank side. So it's not just about the value of information architecture, but could it be the potential value of information? Let's explore that for a moment. We saw this when Dave Weinberger presented some time ago, and um, data leads to information, which leads to knowledge and understanding. And we know that there are lots of people out there who are very, very wise, who have not been through all that. So wisdom doesn't really figure into the formula. So we'll throw that out, and we'll say, well, it's action, all right? We can make better decisions, we, have, uh, we, have, we can trigger actionable events because we have an understanding of what's going on. Is that a reasonable thing to say? Come on, let's see some hands. Is this, is this, why not? I mean, this is the argument we've been using for 10 years now. Hey, you make better business decisions because you know we're putting things where you can find them. Let's go back to Dilbert. Okay, everybody done reading? You want to see the final frame? <laughs> Read Dilbert, because this is, <laughs> this is the way the business community looks at us. This is an information architecture discussion. So. Let me let you on, in on some of the secrets that I've found successful. Napoleon said it very well. There are two levers with which you can set a man in motion, fear and self-interest. That's what life is about. So let's look at fear. If you don't learn faster than your competition, you will ultimately fail. So what can we do? We will give you a sustainable competitive advantage. When you talk about features and benefits, people generally don't talk about features and benefits. They talk about features and effects. Let me just explain how this works, because you need to get to the true benefit. If I have an electric uh, lawnmower, okay, and it has an automatic um, override switch, that's a feature. And you say, well, what is that? Well, it means it stops when it hits you know, something hard so that the motor doesn't burn out. This is where people usually say, well, you know, that's the benefit. I said, well, no, I'm sorry. This is not a benefit. I'm going to buy a, a, a lawnmower that stops all the time? That's nonsense. No, the benefit is this is the lawnmower that's not going to cut off your foot. It's not going to cut the tail off the cat. And suddenly there's value, there's emotion, there's all kinds of other really good stuff in there. So sustainable competitive advantage, that's moving from effect over to benefit. Let's look at self-interest. In declining markets, and nobody can deny that we have a declining market except for the 
chairman of AIG. <sighs> the popular company, companies survive, and we've seen this time and time again. We are the key to providing superior online service. Not services, I'm not talking about some Ajaxy, tweaky, feature-rich, whatever. It's just being nice to the people who come to your site. Saying, hey, look, you know, I'm gonna make it easy for you. Here's the information you need. So, it's not the potential value of information. Well, well what is it? It's a fellow by the name of Harry Beckwith, who's really interesting. He says, you know, appeal to reason, and you have, may have no appeal whatsoever. He's written several books where selling the invisible is certainly one that you should take a look at at one point. Uh, this is my equation, and again, you can't really work this out in mathematical terms, but the reassurance factor has to be more than the worry factor. And that means that the clients say, okay, these people are going to keep me out of hot water. They're my friends. This is critical. What does this gentleman do? He's a doctor. Was anyone here in doubt as to whether this gentleman was a doctor? This is the man who tells you something bad has happened or something good has happened or that you need to check in some, for some really expensive tests. And we trust him. We trust him because he's the one in authority. And we're paying him to be a reliable source. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why I'm not wearing a Hawaiian shirt because it's not just dressing for success, it's dressing to level the playing field. If you want to go into the boardroom, you better look like you belong there. Hmm. Bullet points. So you want to make your clients feel good feel good about themselves, make them feel comfortable. You're not selling to focus groups, you're selling to whoever is on the other side of the table. This is absolutely critical. And I assure you, ROI is not even going to be mentioned. It just isn't. And I know because I'm running five companies right now. It just doesn't come up. Don't sell the service. Understand the service, but sell the relationship. That's where the money is. Be personable. Make them like you. You have to understand the language of business. You have got to have read some Kotler. You have to know who Peter Drucker is. You've got to read Salmonson for economics. If you want to play the game, you've got to read the books that the marketing people and the business people are reading. But it doesn't mean that you need to be an MBA. Okay? Be yourselves. Do what you do best. But build the relationship. So what is an information architect? Let's wind this, wind this up. We've got to eat lunch. We are instruments of social change. Who left? Who left? You see, you just lost out on all the brownie points you scored earlier. Why did you laugh? I heard her laughing back here. <laughs>
He laughs in the face of danger. <laughs> like IAs that laugh when they see guns. <laughs> now, let me show you how this plays out. Let's take some icons here. It doesn't have to be. We have religion. We have politics. We have science. What is it that ties these three areas together? Anyone? What? Icons? People, faith, icons? You're getting close here. What? Well, what, what, well, yeah, well, I just told you you were agents of change. Come on, what, what, what do you think ties this together? They push information. They push information. No, it's communication, my darlings. This is what, this is the business we're in. Okay? Jesus had his disciples. Mohammed had his disciples. Buddha had his disciples. Marx had the Times of London. That's an interesting thought. <laughs> you know, we start with the written language. This is one to a very select few. Not a lot of people read. A hundred years after Gutenberg invented the printing press, not movable type, that was the Koreans, but the printing press, a hundred years after that, people actually started to read. I mean, there was no reason for people to be literate because there was nothing to read. And suddenly there were books. And a hundred years later, there were actually statistics that said, my gosh, people can read. So that's one to many. Then the telegraph comes along. Samuel F.B. Morris removes the constraints of distance. What a remarkable thing. In the old days, I mean, you had to physically deliver a message to somebody else if you wanted to get the message, message, nah, message across. Wonderful. We have the telephone. Suddenly, it's one-to-one -one communication in real time. And the radio, one-to-many in real time. And where are we now? Well, we're in an economic downturn, but I assure you, our time is now. If we cannot take advantage of what's going on right now, we are the low-hanging fruit. We know what it takes when all the salesmen have been fired to make the company successful. It's fear, it's self-interest. It's a sustainable competitive advantage, and it's providing good service. And that is what is going to make us successful and at least help us pay the rent in the next couple of years. And on that happy note, I say thank you. Good. 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 We've got about five minutes for questions. Otherwise, there is a table that I'm hosting tomorrow, and I think it's vaguely related to business. I can't remember what the question was, but uh, questions, comments? More Bloody Mary? <laughs> Mm-hmm.
What, our company? Well, we're, we're a so-called user experience company, which means that uh, uh, nobody really knows what we do. Um, uh, we do, uh, the websites are kind of the bread and butter and desktop apps and uh, straightening out all kinds of really weird back-end stuff. But what we do is we also can look at the offline contingent and say, well, all right, we need to pull these things together because the web, I mean, it, how many of you have mobile phones? Let's see some hands. You don't have a mobile phone? You do. Okay, that's good. Now, how many of you don't use your mobile, how many of you have a, have a message on your, on your mobile phone and say, hey, I'm not here, but I'll call you back as soon as I can? Everybody, okay. How many of you only use your mobile phone for that? You, you only have it as an answering service? No, no, I'm, I'm just, excuse me? Right, okay, but the, the point is that we don't have mobile phones just so we can have an answering service. So our job is partly to explain to clients, hey, you don't want a website just so you can put your brochure up there. Let's build it into the business plan one way or another. And so the strategic work is where we're earning our money. And then there's the tactical stuff of, you know, thesauri and you know, getting everything to work together. But the company is broader than that. If we just go out and sell websites, then we think that that's, uh, it, at least in terms of our vision, that's too narrow. No, they, they listen to us because we understand their business. Okay? We, don't, we are businessmen. We're very good businessmen. We understand the models. We've seen so many of these things before. You talk about pattern libraries. I mean, every business is unique, just like all the others. Okay. Hi. You know, that, that doesn't work, actually. So you. you loudly, you're, you're too. All right. Hey. Hi. <laughs> We've got to stop meeting like this. <laughs> so I, I actually want to know what you do when you speak to some business people who you already have a great relationship with, but they can't explain to you their business plan for the next year, and you need to build a website for them. So what's, what reaction uh, do you have, and what I mean, guidance can you give them, really? That's a really good question, and uh, it's very typical in, in my market in Denmark, uh, where uh, we have, I, you know, I have a suspicion that if all of the Danish servers went down, crashed, the GDP of Denmark would go up. I think that they do so much damage to business in Scandinavia, uh, because people don't understand what's going on. But to, to your point, you have to ease people into this. You don't want them to feel foolish, and you don't want to come in and say, I'm the expert and I know everything. That's a, that's a trust that you, you need to earn. So you need to listen, and you need to guide them. And so they say, well, you know, we have this brochure, and we want this online. And say, oh, great. That's a wonderful idea. And so you chunk all this nonsense that you know you're never going to use. And then you say, what else could we do? Gosh, you know, has anybody talked to the receptionist? Where are the call, calls going in this company? Um, uh, you know, do we have any tracking on, you know, are they asking for specific people by name, or are they just asking for departments, or is the receptionist trying to guess where people should go? You know, can we somehow channel people better by giving them more information? Oh, that's a good idea. Well, what can we put on the web there? And then you can take it on to, well, how many sales visits does it take to close a deal? Often it's seven for some reason. Or maybe, was it 9,000? I don't remember. But I think, <laughs> I think it's seven. 
I think it's seven. And you say, well, good. If we cut that down by two, if we can close a sale in five, because instead of the first meeting where you exchange business cards and sniff each other's crotches like dogs, that's the way business works. Don't laugh at this. This is the way it works. That's the first meeting. Just finding out if you like each other. Nothing gets accomplished at that first meeting. But if you have a good website, people will actually start asking good questions from the beginning. And when you can show off that you actually know something about the web, about business, about whatever, then the trust starts to get formed. So the, the chunking, I mean, there are all kinds of different things that need to play together, from the sales process to whatever. And to get back to chunking, then, OK, what is the information that we need to be putting on this website so that we can cut it down from 7 to 5? And on. Right, but they always do. But when they ask a question like that, don't don't tell them, well, that's not what we were hired to do, but try and guide them in a, in a positive direction. So, well, okay, well, what's your mission statement? What's your vision statement? Where do you want to be in five years? What are you trying to accomplish here? Um, let's see if we can't formulate a vision. Let's talk about the USP. By the way, USP is a concept uh, created by Rosa Reeves, who was an advertising man. It means unique selling proposition, and there is only one unique selling proposition. So a lot of people in our industry talk about USPs as though they are features and different bullets. It doesn't work like that. The USP for M&Ms is melts in your mouth, not in your hand. And that's a USP that's worked for 56 years. So help them find the USP. And if you can find that, then you'll figure out how to do the website. What is it you're trying to sell? And sell less. Don't put everything on the website. That's the biggest problem. I swear, I think that no websites should be more than 50 pages. Yes. And you're wearing a tie, so good for you. <laughs> Hi. Did you guys find it useful to focus on a specific industry? Uh, we, we've done a lot of stuff in life sciences and, uh, and uh, single-use medical devices and, and that kind of thing. Our, our expertise is primarily in business-to-business, in -business, heavy industry, uh, uh, telecommunications, and life sciences. However, it doesn't really matter because nobody cares. I mean, what, by the time they find us, then they, they say, well, all right, you know, can you help us with this? And we, of course, say yes because the patterns are the same. Uh, the, the specific products, the markets, the people they're talking to, the ways in which they need to be targeted, those are all different. But uh, the more you do of this, the easier it becomes. So we did stuff for a company called uh, GN Autometrics. They produce vestibular measurement equipment for balance disorders and, and hearing defects and whatever. And they're selling all this stuff to people who are hearing aid dispensers. Well, we just got a client that now does hearing aids. So we have a lot of background, and we understand how the market is. We know that the role of the, the dispenser vis-a-vis -vis the patient and vis-a-vis -vis the, 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 the consulting physician and so on. So it gets easier the more of this you do. But specialization, well, you can. But um, I, don't th I don't think that there's a need to specialize and say, well, no, we only do e-commerce sites for people who are selling DVDs online. 
Okay, uh, clients like uh, feel good when you're specialized in one industry. For when you say healthcare, when you say that, that was my question. Well, all right. Uh, so, do do the clients feel good if you've uh, declared that you have a specialization? And uh, no, I don't think they do uh, because they quickly see through. Either you understand their business or they don't understand their business. Uh, it may get you on a short list, but it's not going necessarily going to win you the job. Okay. Yes. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I, the deliverables are important, but let's not place too much focus on the deliverables. The deliverables have a very short lifetime. They are there to document something and to make sure that you communicate something from one person to the next. I mean, we scan in napkin sketches, for goodness sakes. I mean, we really do. We have dirty deliverables. We show people the spreadsheets. We glue things together with sticky tape. Either the thing works or it doesn't work. And we don't care if it's in Visio. As a matter of fact, I hate to admit this. I've been in this community now for 10 years. I'll let you into a secret. We have Visio because we had Microsoft as a client. We have the professional edition. And I've never opened the box. I don't know how it works. We do hand-drawn wireframes. We have napkin sketches. We've got all kinds of crap that we put in our presentations. And we may scan it in and glue it into a PowerPoint because that's kind of the lowest common denominator and people can share it and we have some electronic documentation. But we don't waste a lot of time on the deliverables. We think it's better that people pay us to think than to draw pretty pictures. Okay, I think everybody wants to go to lunch. Thank you. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IA Summit, point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the 10th Annual IA Summit, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.